This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So we have two missing persons cases today, and I thought we would include uh, uh, both of them here. One of them's older. Actually, they're both kind of older. Let's do – we'll do Hubert Hansel Larkins first. Now, he's in NamUs. Uh, he wasn't entered until March 28th of 2022. So his missing persons number is 90048. Uh, exactly – he went missing – December 25th of 1977 out of Kingsport, Tennessee, when he was 46 years old. So if you were alive today, be 92 years old. You know, the way they describe him, they say that he went by Tommy, even though his name is Hubert Hansel Larkins. He went by Tommy Larkins. He's a Caucasian male. He was 5'6 to 5 feet, 8 inches tall. He weighed somewhere between 125 and 140 pounds. Uh, he was last seen to be departing his residence at 809 Riverside Avenue in Kingsport, Tennessee on Christmas of 1977. Family members reported that he may have been traveling to New Orleans with friends. It is unclear if Larkins returned from that trip. However, family members report that the brown-haired, brown-eyed Tommy was killed by his brother, Albert Bud Larkins, who is deceased. Now, that comes from a, family members reporting that Albert Bud Larkins confessed to killing him. The basement was searched there by Knoxville Forensic Anthropology Center in 1981, which is four years later. There was no success, uh, but the, the body of, of Tommy Larkins remains, uh, the whereabouts remain unknown. Uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, missing person that you had found in here. I don't see a whole lot more about him. It's There's not. Um, the presumption is, you know, obviously when the brother confessed, the presumption is that he died, right? Uh, the yeah. brother is deceased. Uh, the, the brother that confessed to killing his brother, according to the family, he is also deceased. So they're kind of, you know, at the end of the road there. Yeah, they're kind of just putting that in here to wrap it up. I, that's, in my opinion, sometimes these cases get put in to kind of keep a forward-going 
like record and you know in case the body is found or well or right and he's still a missing person right and uh the confession you know there was no adjudication there was there's never even a case right um as far as like a murder case because the guy's dead right yeah that's uh, uh this it, this case does pop up a couple of different places. Uh, Webster's had an entry about it. And then in uh, May of 2023, WATE six on your side uh, had done a story about the six oldest cases uh, of missing persons in Tennessee. And this case pops up uh, being mentioned there along with uh, Dennis Lloyd Martin, uh, William Bradford Bishop Jr. Who else was on there? Uh, Anna Francis Leatherwood was on there. And Linda K. Sanders. So there's a number of missing persons that they mentioned uh, in the course of that article. Oh, yeah. Uh, Carson uh, Castile was on there as well. But at, at the at the end of it all, uh, Tommy Larkins appears to have been killed by Bud Larkins. So there's not a lot of uh, information out there. We're mentioning it uh, because it, it is a it's a Christmas time disappearance as far as the reporting. December 25th of uh, 1977. Uh, and then there's an older one that you had, and this is from Hawaii. And I, you know, everything Hawaii fascinates me. There's a, a case that we're eventually going to get to there. Um, I'm either going to cover it in video form or we're going to uh, cover it here, maybe both. I, I've always had an affinity for the Hawaiian islands. I'm, I love the ocean in general. Uh, this case is actually from Christmas of 1966. And uh, it brings us to sort of a new source as well that we're going to talk about here in a second. Uh, this is the case of Michael August Cannon, who was 18 years old on December 25th, 1966. If he were alive today, he'd be 75 years old. He's 5 feet 11, uh, Caucasian male. He's 165 to 175 pounds with brown hair, brown eyes. Michael Cannon left his family's Kahala home in Honolulu early Christmas morning. He left a note that he was going up the hike on Tantalus. His car was found empty at the top of Tantalus the day after Christmas, 1966. The resulting search and rescue mission at the time was the largest and most expensive ever in Hawaii. And it failed to find any trace of him, according to the name is profile. And his name is profile is missing person or MP 52198. He goes into Namus on September 8th of 2018. Now, uh, his car was found. It was a 1966 gray Chevy. But the accessories that were thought to be with him, and they put this in here in case anyone ever comes across remains, that like there's a listing of what he had. He had on tan hiking boots. Uh, his clothing was blue jeans and a white T-shirt with the Judson School of Scottsdale, Arizona logo on the front of it. And his accessories were he had an olive drab backpack that he had bought at a, uh, an Army-Navy store. Uh, he had a canteen. He had some high-energy candy bars. A uh, Polaroid camera, a first aid kit, and a blue and white plastic case. And he had a map of the trail area at Tantalus. Now, I said, you know, we're going to bring up a new source with him. You found, and we don't, we don't know the necessarily the the reliability of the source, but I'm pointing it out because anytime somebody takes the time to do uh, work on missing persons cases, it's at, it's at least worth a little bit of a look, in my opinion. This uh, sources. He's brand new to me. Um, had you ever heard of him before? Or you just found him when you were researching this particular case. I just found him with this particular case, um, well, but it seems to be pretty credible. 
Okay, so this source that uh, that we're going to pull a little bit from here is uh, missingpersonscommentary.blogspot.com. Looks like this is run by a guy named Shane Lambert. And uh, Shane Lambert's description here of what he's doing is, I work on missing persons cases as a hobby, provided I have free time. Related to that, I'm a fan of websleuths.com, NamUs Updates, Charlie Project, and like-minded websites. Uh, as of March 21st, I'm taking a private investigator's course. That's part of the description that he has that pops up on every page. He has an April 1st of 2021. Uh, it's an entry about Michael August Cannon. It basically looks like he sort of went through the same information we did. So I'm gonna, I am gonna read. Uh, he he repeats the information that I. Uh, I just left that basically Michael August Cannon left the home on Christmas morning, 1966, and that it was the most expensive, largest search in Hawaii at the time. Uh, it failed to find Michael. However, his vehicle was found and the vehicle had his jacket in it. The doors were locked and there were five dollars uh, in cash in there. He's got some of the timing on here. Uh, he's got a little bit better description. He doesn't have uh, any tattoos, but he says that. Michael's hair was brown. It was uh, it was cropped short and it was curly. This was interesting, and and I'm going to use Shane's words. He says a couple of things that stood out to me while researching this missing persons case. First, he went missing on Christmas Day. Often the holidays at the end of the year are a time of celebration, but there's a lot of depression at that time of year as well. However, I didn't really find anything mentioning depression or despondence with this missing person. He seemed to have a bright future he was looking forward to. And I want to underscore what he's saying there. Again, the reason we do so many episodes this time of year is if people want to listen to content, they have, because I know a lot of podcasters, they record up up until now and they have a couple of their normal episodes or whatever. We do a lot of uh, content because Meg and I have both extensively traveled around this time of year. And I know when you're traveling, it's an easy time if you're in a car or on a plane to listen to multiple episodes. And I've sort of recognized over the years, there's been times when I was completely alone at this time of year that I, you know, I love when I was, uh, when I first gotten divorced and, and uh, things were crazy with my custody cases, which has been so long ago now that I never want to forget people this time of year. And I like to do extra episodes. So we spend extra time putting together. I think we started with the first year, maybe we did 12. And then it sort of spiraled from there. And this year, our, our aim is to have 25 episodes as the 25 days of Christmas under this Home for the Holidays theme. Um you know, we put that out. So I'm underscoring what Shane says here. I totally agree with him. Uh, one detail that stands out with this case, this is Shane's words again. He says, uh, Michael Cannon had a share in a $2.75 million inheritance at the time of his disappearance. The trust was for $5.5 million. Half was going to his mother. Okay. The, and then mother left the other half to her children. According to uh, smartasset.com, a million dollars in 1966 would be worth uh, over $8 million in 2021, um, depending on what you did with it. Accordingly, $2.75 million would be worth $22.7 million today, a little over that. So he wasn't the sole inheritor to this amount, but he was one of five grandkids uh, according to this, um, it looks like an obituary he's pulled from or a, or a blurb in a newspaper about him. 
to a chemical magnet who had made a fortune. That's the quote. The area where the height where uh, this hiker went missing is one that Shane says he's familiar with from another case. His car was found at Tantalus Trailhead on December 26, 1966. In more recent times, when Lindsay went missing in the same area and Lindsay's car was found near Trailhead, one difference is Lindsay's car had a door open, whereas Michael's doors were locked. Uh, Michael Cannon remains lost, um, but not without a trace. A shirt of his was found. Uh, the only result of a well-financed expedition over 10 months that included ground searchers, professional mountaineers from California, search dogs from Canada, and some not-so-helpful psychics, and something called map-reading mystics. As soon as you see psychics or mystics involved in a search, don't be surprised if the person isn't found. It means someone doesn't have a scientific mentality influencing the search. But a shirt that was found seemed like a tenuous connection to Michael. It was found tied to a bush by a man named Richard Davis, although... There were people that thought they saw someone matching his description. Uh, Shane says he thinks these sightings all seem tenuous. The possibility that Michael disappeared intentionally was mentioned in many articles uh, as an opinion of the police. It's hard to imagine someone giving up such a large inheritance, in Shane's opinion. Uh, furthermore, police seem keen to believe in whatever hypothesis is easiest on the budget. If Michael is missing voluntarily, then what was the need there to search? Um, he did some more research about Tantalus Trail. Uh, in 1966, there were two Tantalus Trail. There's, I think there's actually three, but Shane says there's, there's two, Tantalus Trail 1 and Tantalus Trail uh, 2. He found a case that shared some from the same time. A man with similar demographics went missing in that same trail network, and it was a couple of months ahead of uh, Michael's. So, you know... There's, a, there's several different articles that he, he references here that you can go looking a little bit. What he's doing here also has a, a Facebook group, and he mentions that at the end of, of this uh, source of his. And I, I find him interesting. I don't know, you know how credible he is, but he's clearly putting in a little bit of work and trying to highlight some of these cases. And it's hard to fault people who do that. So um, we're using him here today and mentioning him. Again, missingpersonscommentary.blogspot.com. I... I probably let's see. Let's see when the last entry was. Yeah, it looks like he's active in the summer of 2023. There's some, yeah. There's this guy. He's occasionally posting on here, so it's worth uh, taking a look at it. He has quite a few entries on here, and he's he has some cases on here. Uh, in all honesty, I've never heard of. So I always like when people do that. You know, they go out of their way to put together, even if it's like small. Uh, postings. At least he's he's putting forth some effort, and I think that's far more interesting to me than a lot of the um, uh, the the forums and stuff where people kind of repeat the same cases over and over again. I try really hard not to just repeat those same um, narratives. Right. This is somebody that you should go and check out and uh, and see if he's got anything interesting. He has some of the some of the the old standbys that I like, like DB Cooper's in here. Um, so I'll, I will, uh, I might see if I can find out what his motivations are and, and have a chat with him. It's interesting because, um, the reason, uh, I landed here because typically we go straight to sources. We don't like court documents or like any sort of official. Yeah. Okay. And so in this case, when I was looking for missing people that, uh, in the category that we wanted, I had overlooked this one. Um, and so 
when I brought it up, I had to look really quick, right? And so uh, this guy's page came up and it had several of the sources we would normally go to on our own all together. Huh, interesting. Right. So um, I thought it was cool that he had it there. I honestly, I think that Michael Cannon, more than likely, uh, he probably got lost. And unfortunately is somewhere, you know, somewhere out there. I have spent time on Tantalus. Not a lot of time. Because to be honest with you, it was not, when I was there, it was not the most exciting place. Like just in terms of, um, it's pretty up there. Don't get me wrong. It's it's really hard to find ugly spots in Hawaii overall. Uh, I know uh, I'm mentioning Hawaii here. Uh, in 2023, uh, there was a, a very serious disaster there related to a fire that happened in um, in Maui. I love Hawaii. I have spent more time on the smaller islands than I have on the bigger islands, and particularly because I like the isolated, remote beaches and and the the trek through like floor and the fauna, but it does feel a little jungle-like. I will say Tantalus is definitely a place you can get lost at. Um, it was then, and it actually, the if I think of it, it's probably more likely in that particular state park in 1966 that you get lost than you would get lost in 2023, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, right. Um, definitely. So is like the trails, uh, for people who aren't aware, they, there's a big state park there has multiple lookouts. Um, it, and if I'm following what they're saying here and I'm not saying I'm hundred percent right, but I think I'm close. Uh, you can go up to the lookouts at diamond head and, and you can actually look out over Pearl Harbor from there. So it is like a popular sort of it's sort of touristy today. I'm trying to imagine what it would look like in 1966, I think it would look a little more rugged and beautiful. Uh, but you would, you know, you'd still be able to see certain things from that. Um, but I don't think it would be as touristy. Anything you want to say on either one of these guys? Uh, no, I think that covers it. I have a crazy uh, case for our exoneration of today. I don't know if you've ever run into this before, but, uh, and I'm going to cover it anyways. Um, cause it was an interesting case. And I remember looking at it in real time overall, there's some information about this guy that we'll get to at the end. Uh, and I don't know that all the sources here are on the same page. The case that we're covering today is a man named Joseph Abbott. Now, Ultimately, Joseph Abbott was exonerated uh, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, for some crimes that occurred in May of 1991. Uh, and that crime is this. In the early morning of May 2nd, 1991, two sisters who were 13 and 16 years old, they awoke in their home in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and they were getting ready for school. And they discovered that an intruder had entered through a kitchen window. The intruder, uh, depending on which story you read, he bound the two girls, their hand and feet, and he raped them at knife point. And he stayed in the home for uh, more than an hour before leaving. So the opportunity for these girls to see the attacker's face, it was very limited. The victims told investigators that their attacker looked like Joseph Abbott, who was a man who had previously lived in their neighborhood and had been a visitor to their home. 
The girl separately identified Abbott in a photographic lineup and police focused on him as the primary suspect. They collected rape kits from the young victims and they collected other evidence from the crime scene, including their clothing and bedding. DNA testing later conducted on a piece of clothing did not match Abbott, but the clothing wasn't tied directly to the crime. Other DNA tests were inconclusive, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. The Winston-Salem police, they issued a warrant for Abbott's arrest, but they learned upon investigation that he was not in the state. Abbott was located in 1994 in Texas, and he was in a county jail there where he had been arrested for bounce check charges. So this is three years later. That's a long time between the crime and like him popping up again. And ultimately, they extradite him back to North Carolina. Now, the way this goes down in terms of trial, Abbott gets tried uh, before a jury. It's not a bench trial in June of 1995. At trial, the victims testified that Abbott was the man who attacked them. Abbott maintained that he had an alibi that day and that he was working the day the crime occurred. And although his employer testified the employer could not provide a time card due to the four-year lapse in time from the time that the crime occurred to the time that he's testifying at trial. So based on pretty much exclusively eyewitness identifications of these two very young victims, because 13 and 16 is very young at the time of the trial, they're 17 and, 19, 17 and 20 by the time the trial has come back around. Joseph Abbott ends up convicted of rape, burglary, and kidnapping. He gets sentenced to two consecutive, two consecutive life sentences plus an additional 110 years. He appeals his conviction, but in May of 1996, it's wound its way through the North Carolina Conviction and Appeals setup, and his conviction is upheld. So that's where we sort of start with this case. I don't know how, how long ago you remember have you ever heard of this case before there i have yes okay so this case is controversial for actually like a lot of reasons there are a lot of things that happen here where abbott pops up in a uh, a lot of articles to come and um there's actually one of the reasons this case is on my radar is there's a real a couple of actually really popular exonerations that occur in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And um, I don't know how many of them you have followed over the years. I have followed um, the Daryl Hunt case. I don't know if you remember that one. Um, I, and I, I remember the Silk Road case uh, where uh, I'm trying to think. Of, I don't know if her name is... Um, public or not. I'll just use his name. Calvin Michael Smith is a, a controversial figure there. And there are other cases from that area where if you if you care to hunt, um, there are multiple scandals. It's not Winston-Salem, but somewhere near there, uh, the Little Rascals Daycare scandal. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Since we're covering like sort of home for the holidays uh, trials, um, I'm going to go through uh, a very brief rundown of what happened to him. And, and you and I are going to talk about it. And then we're going to sort of talk about some of the outcomes. 
Now, the way this goes down is Abbott stays in prison. He's in prison until 2005. And North Carolina at that time, they opened, uh, they had opened the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence. Are you familiar with these guys? I am, yep. Okay. So the North Carolina Center for Actual Innocence is sort of a, a stop on the uh, the innocence railway. I say that because a lot of people uh, are starting to point out more and more innocence. How do they put it? Industry. Have you heard of this? Like entities that are fighting for innocence. Is that what yeah, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, and how, like They're all the innocent media. projects. Yeah. Yeah. So they haven't, they have multiple weirdly innocence commissions in North Carolina. Now, uh, there's a center and then there's a commission and they're, they're slightly different. The North Carolina's innocence commission is a little stranger than, than this. They have eight commission members that are appointed by the chief justice of the state Supreme court and the chief judge of the state court of appeals. They're trying to include multiple levels of government, which is, that's the case in most jurisdictions. But this Innocence Commission was specifically commissioned as the result of recommendations of a justice study in North Carolina. And the way this goes down is the Innocence Commission comes about because there is a lot going on with the Center for Actual Innocence where uh, they're sort of inundated with uh, wrongful convictions. And that bears out over time where, where it actually makes sense that they have all of this going on. Once he does this, once he applies for assistance with this case, the organization accepts his case. They begin to search for evidence that could be subjected to DNA testing. That was the biggest part of Joseph Abbott's assistance was getting this DNA testing. At the time of Abbott's conviction, police in the state were not required to preserve evidence after conviction. And although most of the evidence from the crime scene had been destroyed by the Forsyth County Clerk's Office, there were a few items, including the rape kits, that were located uh, in storage at the Winston-Salem Police Department. New DNA testing conducted on the evidence was initially inconclusive, but a second round of testing on one of the rape kits ended up excluding Abbott as the perpetrator. Now, Abbott ends up being freed and they attribute this to mistaken witness ID. In fact, if you go and read his profile at the University of Michigan Law School, uh, the state of North Carolina, the counties for sight, the most serious crime here is the forcible child sexual abuse and rape. Um, the additional convictions were sexual assault, kidnapping, burglary, and unlawful entry. The reported crime dates 1991. He's convicted in 1995. He's exonerated in 2009. His sentence was life. Um, the race of the perpetrator, he's, he's black. He's male. And at the time of the reported crime, he would have been 31 years old. Now, the contributing factors here are considered to be mistaken witness ID and did DNA evidence contribute to the exoneration. On Michigan's page, it says yes. Okay. So. I'm sorry. Well, it's a lot, right? Well, no, I was just confused because you're like, on Michigan's page, it says yes. Yeah. As opposed um, to like, it doesn't apply elsewhere. But yes, DNA contributed to this exoneration. Well, there's more to this case. I'm getting there. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you've read the dribs and drabs that have come out over the years. Okay, so here's what happens here. Abbott, he never receives a required gubernatorial or governor's pardon, but he ends up filing a federal civil rights lawsuit. It gets dismissed in 2013. Abbott could have obtained about three quarters of a million dollars in state compensation, like right off the bat. And that's because, okay, so the, the company that ends up testing all of this, they, this, this is complicated. After his charges are dismissed, the state sends some of the physical evidence that's still available in the case to an outside laboratory. And they want testing done in an effort to identify potential suspects. The problem is in 2010, Abbott's DNA is found on one of the samples. It's taken from a bed sheet at the house. So the police said that there had been a rush to exonerate Abbott after his DNA had been excluded from samples taken from the rape kits. But one of his attorneys said that the new evidence did not inculpate or implicate Abbott. The victim's mother then testifies that she had had sex with Abbott, which explains why his DNA was there. So it's a weird plot twist in this story. Well, and just to be clear, that's a completely separate uh, sample of uh, evidence, right? Yes. Um, and uh, uh, let's see. I don't know that. I don't know when the bed sheet that was tested was collected. However, um, the other DNA profile that was developed that excluded uh, Abbott as being the perpetrator, it was straight from the rape kit. Correct. And so um, to me, uh, there are two different things happening there, which it goes on to be additional information provided by the victim's mother to indicate why DNA might have been found on the bed sheet, right? Uh, but it wasn't that they were looking at the two – I mean, I'm sorry. It wasn't that they were looking at a sample, one sample profile and uh, coming to different conclusions. Correct. I don't want to feel okay. I don't want anybody, including you, Meg, to feel like I am contradicting this exoneration. What I really so the reason I picked him one is I'm familiar with that area and, and all the things I talked about. Um, two, this sort of ties into some present day events we're seeing unfold in other places and other high profile cases. Now, what I'm going to read you here comes from actually from 2010, and keep in mind. Uh, the way that I'm presenting this, I'm not taking a stance on this. I'm presenting it so you can see how it was presented. This actually comes from a newspaper there named the Winston-Salem Journal. You can find it at journalnow.com. Two guys, a guy named Paul Garber and a guy named John Hinton are the writers here. And this article has been updated multiple times over 11 years. What I'm coming from to start with is October 7, 2010. So it's a year after Abbott has been exonerated and released. So I'm going to read what happens and then we're going to talk about why they did all of this. And we're going to talk about the ultimate outcome. Uh, So the subtitle here, for some reason, is above the fold is police 
colon, new DNA results point to now freed Abbott as prime suspect again. And the headline is rape case takes twist. More than a year ago, Joseph Lamont Abbott was set free after serving 14 years of a life sentence for raping teenage sisters. Analysis of a swab taken from one of the victims showed that the DNA on it wasn't from Abbott. Yesterday, Winston-Salem police said that further testing, this time of bed sheets taken from the girl's home, had led them to believe that Abbott was in fact the man who raped the 13 and 16-year-old sisters in 1991. And I was doing some rough math on this, and I'm just going to throw this out there. Today, like if you look at like 1991 for them, these girls are much, much, much older because we're talking 32 years later. So rough math on this, you've got one who's 45 and you've got one who's about 48. Police also said yesterday that other DNA evidence in the case on a piece of clothing found at the scene came from a boyfriend with whom the older sister had consensual sex. So they're talking about the 16-year-old girl. The police held a morning press conference and issued a five-page release to support their stance, saying their investigation is now closed. Captain David Clayton said Abbott is the prime suspect in the rape of the two adolescent girls. The case is in the hands of the district attorney. Clayton said, no arrests have been made and no warrants have been filed, he said. But whether the reversal can be reversed or whether such action might even be pursued is not clear. What is clear is there is a rift between the police department, so the Winston-Salem Police Department, and the Forsyth County District Attorney's Office. In a statement emailed last night, District Attorney Jim O'Neill, who was traveling yesterday, said he wasn't given any advance notice of the police department's press release. As I have previously indicated to the Winston-Salem Police Department, the rules of ethics and professional conduct prohibit the district attorney and his agents from commenting about an ongoing investigation. I have spent numerous hours this summer working and advising the WSPD, interviewing the victims and discussing the legal ramifications of the Joseph Abbott case with the North Carolina Office of the Attorney General. The legal opinions that both myself and the Attorney General share have previously been conveyed to the Winston-Salem Police Department. His statement did not reveal what those opinions were, but O'Neill did issue a challenge to the police. Based upon Captain David Clayton's remarks to the press that I read online today, I would be interested to see if the Winston-Salem Police Department, an independent charging authority with the power to arrest anyone they believe has committed a crime, will arrest Joseph Abbott, said O'Neill. Clayton declined to comment on O'Neill's statement. Former District Attorney Tom Key, who agreed last year to the motion to vacate Abbott's convictions, could not be reached for comment. Kimberly Stevens of Winston-Salem, Abbott's attorney, said her client maintains his innocence. Stevens said she asked the police department for the investigative file in the case, but she hasn't received any information. Stevens declined to comment about any evidence in the case. She said she doesn't think that prosecutors will try to charge Abbott again. My reading of the law is that they cannot charge him again. Mark Rebel a local attorney who is co-director of the Wake Forest University's Innocence and Justice Clinic, agreed with Stevens. I don't see how they could legally file any new charges against them, said Ravel. Abbott was freed on September 2nd, 2009, after DNA testing of a swab taken from the older sister showed that his DNA did not match. 
a joint motion to vacate the convictions was made by the Forsyth County District Attorney's Office and the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence, which had taken up Abbott's case. After his release, more items from the crime scene were sent off for additional testing in hopes of uncovering a new suspect. That testing, conducted in July of 2010, found DNA that masked Abbott on floral sheets. The reinvestigation of the case began in August of 2008, prompted by an inquiry by the Innocence Center. The motion to vacate Abbott's convictions went before Judge Moses Massey in Forsyth Superior Court in September 2009. At his trial, evidence against Abbott was largely based on witness identification. According to testimony, about 5.30 a.m. on May 2, 1991, the sisters were getting ready for school when an intruder entered their house on Fairchild Road in eastern Winston-Salem. According to a summary of the case, their mother had spent the night at a boyfriend's house and the girls had been left unattended. The intruder raped both girls at knife point and bound their hands and feet. The attacker stayed in the house for about an hour and a half, searching for money before leaving. The girls told investigators that they believed that their attacker was a man named Joseph, who lived two doors away. Once police confirmed that Abbott had lived nearby, they zeroed in on him as a suspect. The girls picked him out in separate photographic lineups, and police collected physical evidence, including rape kits, bedding, and clothing from the crime scene. Before investigators could arrest Abbott, he had left the state. They found him in May of 1994 in Texas, where he had been serving time for unrelated crimes. While Abbott was missing, the State Bureau of Investigation completed its testing of the physical evidence. Because of the limitations of DNA science at the time, a conclusive genetic profile of the rapist could not be created. The trial started June 19, 1995, and both victims identified Abbott as their attacker. He did not testify, but said that he had been working that morning as a painter, a fact that could not be confirmed by his employer. A jury convicted Abbott on two counts of first-degree rape, two counts of first-degree kidnapping, and Judge Todd Burke of Forsyth Superior Court sentenced him to two consecutive life sentences plus 50 years. The North Carolina Court of Appeals upheld the convictions in May of 1996. Clayton said yesterday that DNA policy in the 90s was to test only rape kit evidence and not the evidence that wound up identifying Abbott in July. In consideration of the semen stains from one of the victim's bedsheets matching the nuclear DNA of Joseph Abbott, there is sufficient information to implicate Mr. Abbott as the perpetrator of the crimes. The police said in the document they released about the new evidence. The police department has closed the investigation into the sexual assault of the adolescent victims, and all information has been provided to the Forsyth County District Attorney's Office. Among the evidence discussed by the police is a cutting from a piece of shirt. The police said testing of that evidence in May of 2009 revealed DNA matching a person who the police identified as the older sister's boyfriend at the time she was raped. The police said that the girl had testified at trial to being sexually active with the boyfriend and confirmed that in re-interviews with them. Okay. You know why I'm, like, pointing all of this out, right? Well, I mean, I guess it's relevant. Nobody agrees with anybody in this case. It's interesting because we don't hear anything about the other rape cut, right? No, we don't. And it seems like there's, like you said, like a lot of disagreement happening here. And um, I feel like a rape kit would be somewhat invalidated uh, based on the fact that, like, she stated she had consensual sex with someone. 
And then there's this big old sort of bridge with regard to, like, they don't match uh, the DNA from the rape kit to the boyfriend. They match a different uh, DNA sample to the boyfriend. Yes. And I don't know because, it, you know, in 2009, I'm not really sure. It seems like once the profile was developed, at least at that time, it seems like it wasn't a situation where they couldn't compare it. But I don't actually know. Uh, they've just got to make up their mind, as far as I'm concerned. Because once you've got, uh, if you show me DNA evidence from a victim's rape kit that yields a male profile that does not match the perpetrator that is in jail for the crime, okay? Uh, that's evidence to let him out of prison. I agree with you. There's never going to be a situation where that's not the case because in my opinion, uh, especially since there were two victims here, right? The if And if they a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old are saying they were both raped by the same person, the 13-year-old who was not having consensual sex with anybody that we're aware of, uh, her kit should have been used, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, why isn't this happening? I have no idea. I mean, to me, it sounds like, you know, it's one of those, they put the cart before the horse and the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. And I don't know... Uh, it seems like some of the um, remarks back and forth are kind of snide, right? Like, well, why don't you ask the police department if they're going to arrest him, right? Yeah. You know, it uh, It just seems like they're kind of going back and forth in an inappropriate way. Yeah, they, they really are. And this continues for years. Same, uh, actually not same source, different source. Uh, this is CBS17.com, uh, February 2020. Abbott is still a source of controversy there. It's not between the police anymore. The, this February 24, 2020 article is by Michael Highland, and the caption reads, uh, or the headline reads, family of man exonerated in 1995 rape case asked for Scythe County DA to stop using the case and ads for political game. Family members of a man exonerated years after his conviction in a rape case are calling on the Forsyth County District Attorney to stop highlighting the case in advertisements in a campaign for state attorney general. Joseph Abbott was convicted in 1995 of raping two girls in Winston-Salem. He was exonerated in 2009. Christine uh, Mama, an attorney and Republican candidate for attorney general, worked on Abbott's case helping to secure his release from prison. One of her opponents in the race was uh, Forsyth County District Attorney Jim O'Neill, he brought attention to the case in commercials and materials mailed to voters' homes, criticizing her for working to free a convicted child rapist. Everybody I've talked to has been shocked by this, said Mama, who is also executive director of the NC Center for Actual Innocence. It's a complete misrepresentation against somebody who can't defend themselves. His brothers started to see the ads in recent weeks and are calling on O'Neill to stop running them. After it sunk in, you know, it brought back all those memories and love that I had for Joseph Abbott. And of course, I've broken down and cried because I'm sitting there saying it was a hard time for him said Thurman Abbott. Just over a year after his release from prison, Winston-Salem police said they retested the evidence in his case in an effort to find the true rapist. They said at the time that Abbott remained their prime suspect despite his exoneration. O'Neill was appointed district attorney in November 2009, two months after Abbott's exoneration, and has been reelected to the office since then, continuing to serve 
as district attorney all the way through 2020, which is when this article is. After police came forward with their announcements about evidence in Abbott's case, O'Neill never pursued new charges against him. I went back to the attorney general's office to determine whether we could bring charges forth. And unfortunately, the rule of double jeopardy prohibits us from going forward and prosecuting him again. Otherwise, I can assure you, Joseph Abbott would have been charged and tried again for the rape of those two little girls. The bottom line is Christine Mama got it wrong in this case, got it flat out wrong, said Jim O'Neill. Mama responded, if they believed it was Joseph Abbott, they could have charged him with breaking and entering. They could have charged him with something he wasn't charged with originally. Mama said the new DNA evidence was from a sheet on the bed in the home where the rapes occurred. And the mother had testified at the original trial 15 years prior that she had had sexual relationships with Joseph. And the DNA from the rape kit is what is relevant DNA in this case, which is what you were saying, Meg. That's the probative evidence, said Mama. There's no explanation how that DNA in that kid is a male profile that doesn't match him. O'Neill brought up previous cases against Abbott, saying he just learned of them in recent years. Two times prior to this, he had been charged with first-degree rape in Winston-Salem in unrelated cases, and he was allowed to plead down guilty to something else. This was Christine Mama's case, and it shows a judgment that she has when it when she comes in and tries to tell the world that this was an innocent person wrongfully convicted, Mama said he doesn't get it. Even his justifications continue to attack this man who was declared innocent. O'Neill also highlighted Mama's admonishment by the NC State Bar in 2016. As CBS 17 reported at that time, she was accused of violating privacy in a murder case by taking a water bottle for DNA testing. Um, that's a different thing that I'll get into in a minute. The bar had accused her of conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. She pointed out that the bar dismissed those more serious allegations and issuing the admonishment. So this is like Joseph Abbott being used for political gain. Uh, and I just, I, I want to throw this uh, last little part out there because I, I kind of been leaving it out. I'm burying the lead on this, but in case people didn't pick up on what I'm saying here, uh, Joseph Abbott is no longer with us. And that is because uh, uh, Foxy in Winston-Salem had a, a, a headline article in March of 2015. And it just says, police are investigating the cause of a head-on crash Thursday night that left 54-year-old Joseph Abbott dead in Winston-Salem. Uh, the district attorney's office confirms Abbott's the same man who was exonerated on rape charges in 2009. The wreck happened just after, uh, just before 9 p.m. on the 4100 block of Carver School Road. Officers said that Walter Black III, 53, was driving when he saw a car driving north in the southbound lane. He told officers he tried to avoid the other car by steering left, but he was unable to avoid a collision. Abbott, who was the driver of the other vehicle, died at the scene. Black and his two passengers were transported to NC Baptist Hospital with minor injuries. Police don't know if speed or alcohol were factors in the crash. Sort of a tragic ending for him, so he will not be home for the holidays. So, a couple questions. First, what do you think of that? Like, them using Abbott as a political jousting? I feel like they're, it's not being used successfully either way. No, it's not, really. As far as... I don't think it's appropriate uh, based on the way that uh, it ended for the district attorney to be using it um, because he, he wasn't reconvicted of anything. It was just a statement made by the police department that a DNA sample matched the 
man that had been, that his conviction had been overturned, right? And was it a year later? Is that? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it unfolded over the next year and change. Um, And so that just makes a lot of confusion for everybody, right? However, I stand by what I said earlier. Uh, If a rape kit yields a different DNA profile, one that excludes a perpetrator, um, there's either he didn't do it, right? Or there's some problems in the investigation, right? Like, for example, they didn't notate the one of the rape kits was more than likely invalid. Yeah, I, so I pulled a piece. I couldn't find the original press release. I was looking for it in here. Um, I pulled a piece of it. The, I, so what the Winston-Salem police hypothesized there is that and, and they don't back this up, by the way. They were thinking Abbott's DNA would have been, if the rape kit had done, I think the word they used was more detail, then Abbott's DNA would have been recovered. But they hypothesized that it was possible he used a prophylactic or a condom. What and, was the other? And the DNA that was in there for the 16 year old was the boyfriend because the prophylactic prevented it from being deposited. But I will say they suspiciously leave out everything about the other DNA kit. Well, and I, I mean, I get what's happening there, but you know, I mean, the initial exculpatory finding was released (laughs) Right. Instead yeah, of yeah, I'm 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 with you. I'm you know. I mean, they had already convicted the guy. I know. It seems to me, like they would have, you know, preserved their case. It doesn't seem like that happened. I, I don't. I I don't understand why. You know, because you could have very easily made the comparison of the two rape kits, right? Yeah. Um. Like for example, the if. And they don't say that the ex- the DNA profile developed that excluded Abbott. They don't indicate that that matched the boyfriend, right? Correct. Okay. And so that's another thing that I feel like is relevant. This is a, you know, it's a tough kind of pill to swallow in a way. Well, everybody here talking, <laughs> this sounds terrible, but like, None of them are getting to the point on any of this stuff. And even in the this press release that's five pages long, that they, they don't give the press enough that the press is saying, well, this is what we found. You know, some stuff indicates that Abbott's DNA is found on the bed sheets, and then the mom says that she was having sex on her daughter's bed at trial. And then there's the boyfriend who's brought up as being the contributor somewhere in there. They don't specify it enough that like we can look at it and go, okay, well that makes sense. Um, I, this is very confounding to me. Do you have, you have more thoughts on this? Cause I have a couple things to ask you, but I wanted to go there first. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've like, adequately expressed what I've thought so far. Yeah. Well, do you think he did it? Well, I don't know. I have no idea. But I do know that in the event, like like I've said, this is kind of a hard line here. And, you know, the details of a thorough investigation would, would separate this out to where it's not a problem. Okay. 
a rape kit yielding a DNA profile that does not match the perpetrator unless there's multiple DNA profiles, which that's not mentioned either, right? Yeah. Okay. That is going to, if it excludes the perpetrator, that's going to lend towards he didn't, he's not the rapist. Yeah. I w- so if I saw something in here that was like, there was some mixed DNA profiles, like they don't get into enough detail in terms of how exonerations go. This one's a little weird. He doesn't ever end up getting recommended for a pardon, but in 2009, he is exonerated. 2010, the question is raised. And then he passes away a couple of years later in the midst of sort of the legal action surrounding this. He has a federal case that gets kicked, but a lot of those do get kicked on the first try, kind of under summary judgment. And right, and he was not able to connect, uh, he was not able to collect uh, state compensation for his incarceration because he didn't get that gubernatorial pardon. But I don't know that he applied for one. Like, that's another thing. Like, did I mean, I, I mean, did his attorneys apply for one? Are they automatically granted upon exoneration? Did like not enough time pass before he died? Because they're not going to grant a pardon to somebody that died, I don't think. I So I think the Winston-Salem Police Department, while they don't end up getting him rearrested and like, you know, I was I was looking at this. This is going to sound terrible, but I don't actually understand what these lawyers are talking about here because they're saying, OK, can't we try him double jeopardy, which in a lot of cases is true. But in this case, they're also saying other cases have been pled out to lesser crimes and that like they have, you know, pitched that and they go back and forth with this sort of bickering match. Why did they never charge him with something else then? Because I went through and I looked at like his criminal record and he definitely has an interesting criminal record. He's got some larcenies and some DUIs. Uh, he has an assault on a female. He has an escape charge, like all that take place prior to this crime. Um, it's an interesting criminal record, but it, it's not until it gets to this 1991 crime. It's not super violent. Uh, the assault on a female is a misdemeanor. So that could be made like, and I can't find another record of it because of the way it's played out, but that occurs in, uh, it looks like it's 1987 and occurs and it's played out in 1989. But that charge could be what they're saying was a rape played out to a, a, a simple misdemeanor assault. That doesn't sound right to me. Well, well, exactly. It doesn't sound right. And to me, um, that suggestion, which we don't know like if that's accurate or not, but because it's been put out there and he does, have the one assault on a female charge that is possible. Like you said, it could be connected to a a greater charge of rape, right? Or something, you know, that reveals a problem like in the prosecutor's office, right? Yes. Because, you know, the reason you don't like reduce a rape charge is because you want it to be on someone's record, right? You want it to be, because they're a threat, right? I yeah, mean, particularly in the, like, I can't remember. When does North Carolina get a sex offender registry? Do you remember? Huh, I have no idea. Well, I'm and just I saying. Like, towards the 2000s, though. Okay, it could be. like Because uh, I, I realized, like, while I'm sitting here reading this with you, I'm, uh, I, I 
realized there was this period of time where there was no sex offender registries from anywhere. And then all of a sudden, like everybody's on the sex offender registry. And then now they're, you know, pairing that back as they do all these like rebalancing acts related to how people are punished. And it just seems like a prosecutor, um, and I know that this isn't what happens, but it seems like they would be able to balance uh, things out between like, you know, judicial efficiency and and making plea deals versus like ongoing threats to communities, weighing out each case, like as the information's presented. Um, Anytime you would have someone attacking someone that they're not in any sort of domestic relationship with or, you know, any relationship with, that person is a threat, right? I don't know that that's the case with his previous charges. I do think this is a whole lot of weird things happening as far as I don't think it sh- there should be this much question involved in either a conviction or an exoneration. It could be a whole lot clearer, I think. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. I think uh, whenever something goes sort of sensational for the sake of politics, you start scraping stuff off the wall. Like it doesn't, it no longer, it's no longer sticking for me. And well, and they, they did the test to, um, to try and find the culprit, right? After the perpetrator was exonerated, they did. So to me, it's weird that they were testing a bed sheet, uh, unless it was part of the original evidence. I have no idea. Like, I don't, I, I didn't see that. Well, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Like if I read between the lines here, which you're not supposed to do, but I'm doing it for the sake of these episodes, because I'm curious how they get there. If you read between the lines, kind of what you read is maybe the rapist used a condom and the DNA that we have on the girls is actually, or, you know, in their rape kit is actually not going to be reliable because the little girl has no DNA and the older girl only has DNA from her boyfriend. So we're going to have to look at things around the scene for maybe when he removes the prophylactic, maybe there's some DNA there to find. Possibly. Sure. Uh, And, And I'm stretching it. I'm just doing it from the perspective of what I think they're thinking. I will say that at the end of all of this, I have not been convinced that Joseph Abbott did it, but also I have not been convinced that he didn't do it. I can only say that they exonerated him based on some DNA not matching, and I'm not going to be the one to open that can of worms. No, I I think that the exoneration should have happened, and if there was more information that would make what led to the exoneration irrelevant, uh, then it wasn't presented adequately, right? Yeah. Um, that doesn't change the scientific evidence there. Um, and I'm not, I, you know, I'm not advocating for a rapist to be exonerated. I'm saying, like, when evidence shows something, you can't, you can't discredit it without a, a factual basis, basically. And everything we've seen here, like, it's all kind of like, well, this is what happened and we don't actually know what happened. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You're totally right. And you know, I, I have all kinds of theories. I'm not going to get into the speculating on the theories. I try to stay within the bounds of what's going on here. And like you said, we don't know 
how all of this went down, we can only look at this from the perspective of the legal documents that are laid out here. And they're not, they're, they're not super thick. Like this is a thin case anyways. Um, right. And so there, he was basically convicted on eyewitness testimony. And so how much does that weigh into it for you? Eyewitness testimony, I have stated, I, I think, he, didn't eyewitness testimony come up when we covered, didn't we cover Kevin Green this year? And that was one of the... Uh, the we talked about uh, how unreliable it was, but that was a situation where a uh, well, a victim, a woman who was attacked and lost her unborn child during the attack. the husband, yeah. Um, and so she was suffered from a tra- traumatic brain injury, right? And so that right. was the eyewitness testimony. It would be different in that case than it would be when you've got a 13 and a 16-year-old girl identifying their attacker. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I was just thinking to myself, like, how do I? So I guess <laughs> it's interesting. The point of eyewitness testimony being unreliable is if 50% of the cases where the eyewitness testimony points to a particular person line up with the DNA and 50% of the cases do not line up with the DNA where eyewitness testimony points at a person, then that's not a reliable way to be prosecuting your cases. But what about in like this situation where like (laughs) um, you've got a situation where uh, two witnesses identify a man who ultimately is excluded from DNA found in the rape kit, whether or not that, resulted from the boyfriend or not right i mean it's in the (sighs) rape kit so uh it adds this other layer um i i don't even i feel like that is so sloppy i you know i i I looked that's the whole reason this guy ends up on the list plus the tragedy of all this all of this is he's gone like basically he he only had six years out so did he do it did he not do it we're not going to know because the minute that he, that something like that happens they let that specter loom over his dead body well no kidding and it's it will go on and on and you know you don't want to i don't want to undermine the victim saying that it was him right yeah um it's just sometimes i wonder Okay, so let's say, you know, there's justice in life, right? Yeah. Um, and he, he was in jail for, because he was sentenced to uh, life, right, once he was convicted in 1995. Life plus 50, I think, yeah. Um, for the crime that happened in 1991, he was sentenced to life, and his exoneration didn't come until 2009. And then um, he died in 2015, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is uh, that is the path of justice that occurred there. Um, and then there's something called karma. Uh, and you have to wonder, and I'm not saying anything about any of it, except like, you know, uh, it would, it's interesting. And, and I don't, I don't look this up because I, I just, am not going to go there, but it's interesting to hear about how many people get exonerated and die. What seems like an early death. I, you know, so I follow where you're going with that. But the thing is like, I have a different view on like how that would work. Like, so here's the deal. If, if he's like, say that whatever happens to you when you actually cease to exist is a very bad thing, then it's karma because they died and they don't get to live anymore. But if what happens to you is a very good thing, then it's karma it was him being released from this life because. 
Well, and I don't disagree with that either. I And I, I don't know. Like, I'm not passing judgment on them. I'm just uh, casually observing the number of people that, as we will tell their exoneration stories, we also have a detail about their death. Yeah, there are quite a few of those in here. I, it's, it, I would say that if there's a correlation there, it would be uh, striking. Well, we'll never know, really. But um, it, I do think that um, imprisonment, uh, I would say either way, like if you are guilty or not guilty, um, but I feel like, uh, especially if you're not guilty, going to prison, being exonerated, uh, your entire life is ruined, Okay. It is. It absolutely is. I agree. And I feel like that takes a toll on people. Um, and, you know, this guy, Abbott died in a head-on collision. with a, He was traveling in a vehicle going the wrong way, right? Yeah. And he hit another vehicle. Um, and the other car, like you mentioned in the newspaper article, those people were not injured seriously. However, he was killed. And so, you know, it's not a normal thing for a middle-aged man to be driving the wrong way, right? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't. It said at the time that there was no indication of whether or not drugs or alcohol or whatever else were involved in the crash, but something had him driving the wrong direction, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the toll it takes is it's, it's not just collateral, right? Like, I mean, there's a real thing that happens to people who go through this kind of thing. So. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it, it's unfortunate and it's not that, ah, oh, man, I just, I feel, I feel for that, for all of the people involved here, there's just not much that will ever sort out the truth here. That's, that's, that's a strange situation when you look at some of these, like, like everybody, like, uh, is not going to know what happened. I guess those two girls and, and whoever was the perpetrator, maybe. But it's a sad, this was a sad one. I wonder if they'll ever have to do like unexonerations. Well, that's, that's one of the reasons I brought this one up. And it's because of the possibility of the reverse reversal, because, you know, we've got like, like one of the things that's been looming this year is a couple of these big cases where look, Adnan Syed had the whole winding its way through the Maryland courts where it was, uh, he was not being retried and then he was like being released and then the victim's rights and its issue came up and that whole thing got stayed. But like he, for like a while it hung in limbo. Like, is he, or is he not going to be like retried or like, or like what's going to happen? But yeah, unexonerations are going to become a thing at some point. I don't know how that's going to work. Yeah, I don't know. It's double that, jeopardy applies. I, I don't know that that's going to be possible. Um, I, don't, I don't either. Let's just get through, like, getting everybody that needs to be exonerated, exonerated first. <laughs> and then they can start with the unexonerations. I mean, I don't know. It's a never, it's a, it's a perpetual cycle. That's never going to happen. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.
All right, so I'm going to tell you guys a, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show. And that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. 
There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use TrueCrimeXS, that will get you, uh, at Laird will get you 15% off. At some of the other places, they'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. 
And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code True Crime Access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Access.